Okay, well, we're starting the series this morning called Relation Slips, and we use that play on words, and I'm not original with that. I heard somebody else use it, probably with 20, you go on Google. Uh, but I like that context because it does communicate the fact that in our relationships, that oftentimes we slip, we kind of mess up, and oftentimes it's because we take our cues from a culture that not really is very supportive of the home of marriage of relationships. We're bombarded by so many messages today that really don't help a whole lot, whether it's from the media, whether it's around the water cooler at work, uh, things that really don't add to strong, healthy relationships in the marriage unit, as well as all that means to the family at large. Well, as we get through the series over these next six weeks, you'll notice in the, on the back of the pew there's a card there, and on the back we have each Sunday with a, di with a different topic. Again, those cards are meant for you to uh, give to somebody. You may know somebody uh, who maybe is struggling in the marriage, or you just may feel prompted of the Lord. Hey, you might be interested in this. That's what those are for, but also for your own information. We're going to be dealing with a number of topics, as you can see. I won't go through them now. But as we go through the different topics, invariably, uh, I'm going to say something or, or we're going to talk about something that we really don't have a whole lot of time to delve into. And so there's a few things I just want to kind of get out of the way this morning as we, as we move into this whole area of relationships, particularly this morning in the area of marriage. The first thing I want to mention is that every husband and wife sins in their marriage. I don't care how good and godly you are. I don't care how wonderful your marriage may be. All of us are broken and dysfunctional in different ways, and we come into any relationship with baggage. And so we have to acknowledge that there are things that all of us do that aren't very Christ-like at times, and that, that's just part of being human, but part of growing out of that. There's also such a thing as an offending spouse and a betrayed spouse in some marriage situations. If you've been hurt this morning in your marriage, we're going to talk about some statistics, we're going to talk about some things to do with, with divorce and the effects of that. But if you've been hurt in your relationship, I want you to understand, you won't hear condemnation from me. You'll get condemnation from the devil, but you won't get it from God. And so I want us to understand as we deal with some of these things um, that both Jesus and Paul made allowance for a marriage to end if certain things uh, have been violated. Uh, namely, number one, adultery, if there's been a, adultery in the relationship, or if you have a spouse who simply walks away and there's nothing you can do. Uh, the scripture recognizes that there is, uh, uh, that there is room there uh, for that relationship to end. But God does prefer, of course, healing and restoration, and we have stories of that. It's a beautiful thing to see what God can do. But he also recognizes sometimes that such damage has been done that the betrayed spouse feels no option but to end the relationship. Another thing I want us to understand this morning is that the key to us being restored in a relationship that's dysfunctional or broken, whatever the scenario may be, the key is intentional intimacy with Jesus Christ. That really is the key. Uh, marriages, lives can be turned around if people who profess to know Jesus Christ actually get serious about their walk with him and turn to him and actually walk with him and, 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 and weep with him uh, and also, you'll need intentional forgiveness, you need inner healing, all these things are key. Another important fact is that statistics are just that. They're statistics. They're averages. So what I mean by that is, let's say, for example, I say that 60% of people are affected in one particular way. What does that mean? It means that 40% aren't, right? Or that 40% maybe are not affected the same way. Spouses and children are not damned for eternity because something went wrong in the marriage relationship. There are many people who go through divorce. I've actually done a seminar in past years called Growing Through Divorce. And there are many godly people who have grown through those times and who have children who love the Lord. It hasn't been easy. 
but I've found that most times they've made a decision to turn to Christ daily, to walk with the Lord, to press in with Him, to, to lean on other believers, and then to plug into the body of Christ. And yet, I also want us to understand that the damage that comes to life, that comes to relationship, that's lived in rebellion against God, it can't be understated. We're going to deal with it more down the road, but this idea that I can do something and just ask God forgiveness later, it's a lie, friends. It's a lie. And I'll go more into that. Not that there's not forgiveness, but don't get caught up in that lie. There is great hope in the direst of circumstances, but the fact is you cannot just drift along. You have to be intentional in your walk with Christ. And then finally, there's also hope for the guilty spouse or the offending spouse. For the person that maybe you're here this morning, you've come through a broken relationship and you know that you were the cause primarily of that brokenness. There is hope, but it comes through confession and it comes through repentance. Genuine repentance to God, repentance to those whom you have hurt, and also restitution needs to be made in order to reestablish some kind of relationship, or if you're in that relationship still, to reestablish trust. And if you're in a relationship where there's been violation, you need to understand that God calls us to forgive for our freedom. But forgiveness does not mean that the offended person does not have to earn the trust again. It does not mean that you just go back to business as you because I've forgiven, so I have to open myself up to everything. No, you have the right with the Holy Spirit's leading, not that you're being vindictive or mean or, or in any way vengeful, but you have the right as God's leading to go step by step as you feel that you are able to open yourself up again as this person proves their repentance, proves uh, their growth, their change. Does that make sense? won't go into great detail, but, but uh, I think that's important to understand as well. So everything that God has designed has been designed to generate life and joy and health and peace. And we discover that when we do things God's way. When we don't do things God's way, what we do is we invite death into our own lives, into our relationship with God, and into our relationship with other people. Now, I'm kind of going quickly this morning, sticking my notes because we're, we're late getting started here, but um, I don't, I don't want to miss anything, but I don't want to drag us on too long because I want us to have a meaningful time around the Lord's table, and I know these last few weeks you'll be getting used to short messages, which I hope you really enjoy. That was your Christmas gift. But over the past 40 or 50 years, marriage has been in a pretty much steady decline. One of the reasons for that, as we have in the next slide, is because we have shifted as a culture from a culture of understanding the importance of self-denial to becoming an, a, a culture of self-fulfillment. What I mean by that is we used to find fulfillment in embracing our roles. It doesn't mean they were antiquated, locked-in roles. It meant that we understood the value of being who we were meant to be, who we were meant to be as a man, as a woman, as a husband, as a wife. We understood there were some distinct roles there that if we gave ourselves to that, that we actually began to find fulfillment in the fruitfulness of our relationship. Well, that's kind of changed a little bit today. Instead of people finding fulfillment through giving of ourselves for the sake of our marriage and our family, marriage has been redefined as existing for the purpose of providing emotional and sexual fulfillment. That's what a lot of people think marriage is for. One thing you're going to understand if you walk with the Lord very long is that self-fulfillment is not a scriptural value. Self-denial is the scriptural value. Jesus modeled that. He modeled that as we give of ourselves that we actually release something in those around us that returns to us. 
by way of blessing and fulfillment. So self-fulfillment is not the goal in and of itself. One of the intentions, I believe, for marriage is to produce character. And the cost of character is your selfishness and your pride, and as Christians, even your unbelief. Because as two people actually become one, as the Scripture has designed it to be that way, the Lord has said, then those personality traits that I just mentioned, that selfishness and stuff, is meant to fall away. And just when you think, after you've been married for a little while, just when you think you're getting a handle on things, just when you think you're starting to grow out of your selfishness and all that stuff, what happens? The kids come along. Then you realize you really don't matter a whole lot. You matter in what you pour into their lives, but there's even more dying to self that comes along then, and that's when you say goodbye to your nice cars and all that other stuff. <clears throat> so marriage is, is so much more than just a contract between two people for the purpose of personal gratification. That's one reason for the decline in marriages today. Another reason for the decline in marriage is the introduction of what is called no-fault divorce. Prior to the 1960s, only the betrayed spouse in an adulterous relationship could initiate the divorce. The guilty spouse was the one who usually suffered the most financial and custodial difficulty for being the cause of the divorce. The reason for that law was to, to emphatically communicate to our culture that marriage is very important to society, that marriage is still the best place to train children, to raise them up in ways where they can be secure, where they can discover their identity, they can become contributing members of our society. Our society recognized that, but society also uh, was against this no-fault idea initially in order to compensate the betrayed spouse and the children who were damaged by the behavior. So in other words, if a person was thinking, hey, I'm just, I just want to get out of this. Maybe I'm attracted to somebody else. Maybe I don't feel happy. What, you know, whatever the, the, the lies that are always all around us and people will feed you. Then there was a real deterrent there because you understood that if I initiate this, there's going to be consequences on me. And oftentimes it was enough to keep you in there and to keep you working on a relationship and seeing it turn around. But of course, again, today that has changed. Today a couple can divorce for any reason. And oftentimes, the one who had the affair or the one who walks away can be the one who files the divorce without suffering any, any real penalty or consequence uh, that to speak of. And oftentimes, as well, the betrayed spouse who did nothing to violate the vows can themselves find themselves divorced, stripped of their assets, and even lose custody of their children. And sometimes, depending on their income, they can be the ones responsible financially for the spouse who was unfaithful. That's the difference of our culture today. There's an organization called the Institute of American Values. They sponsor a report called the National Marriage Project. They brought together over 100 experts of social sciences. And what they studied was the effects of the broken family or the effects of divorce on society at large in our culture. And so the research revealed, I'm not going to go through them this morning, but the research revealed that, uh, that, that divorce has simply kind of skyrocketed since the 70s but they also said it resulted in 30 significantly detrimental effects upon the adults and the children. 30. Here's just a couple. One thing they said is that marriage greatly increases the likelihood of good relationships between fathers and mothers and their children. Of course, nothing is foolproof. Even in intact marriages can be damaged, but it's still, they say it's still preferable to a broken family. They say 65% of young adults from divorced homes 
had poor relationships with their fathers, compared to 29% of intact families. Grandchildren of divorce are also impacted and are significantly more likely to experience negative relationships with parents, experience marital discord themselves, and lower levels of educational attainment. They also noted that children raised in intact homes, and it doesn't mean the home is perfect, but it's intact. You see, they do better in the areas of literacy, graduation rates, rates of anxiety, depressions, substance abuse, delinquency, incarceration, and suicide. Now, again, I want to be clear, this is not a condemnation of those who've experienced divorce. This is not saying that every child of divorce turns out bad. But the breakdown of the family unit does affect every member in ways that God never intended. In my own experience, my parents divorced several years ago. They were just shy of their 50th anniversary. They went their separate ways. And here I am as an adult, my own family, married for over 30 years, all that I have. And I can, I can, I can honestly say that that still impacts my life. It affects in various ways, subtle ways, even several years later. So it doesn't matter where you are in life, there is something about that brokenness that affects uh, contrary to what God intends for us. And that's what we're seeing today, the effects of broken marriages on society as a whole. The notion that, uh, that, that, that the consequences of divorce are just limited to the husband and the wife or that the children can adjust. We need to understand, friends, is a fabrication. Our children adjust because they have to. I mean, they have no choice. We either survive or we take our life. We, we have a choice. But I want us to understand it's not something that's inconsequential, and I'm certainly not inferring that any parent feels that way, but the message of society is that. And oftentimes we take society's advice, and then we find out, like everything else Satan does, it's just a carrot that is dangling. We reach for it. We lose everything. We find ourselves in a place that we never expected. I know a Christian lawyer... Uh, who always counsels couples who come to him and uh, are talking about divorce. He told me a number of years ago, he said, Paul, I tell them that divorce is seldom the escape from the pain that you expect. And let me be clear as a pastor, and I hope they have a heart of compassion. I really honestly believe, and I've said this many times before, that the average person who wants out of the marriage doesn't necessarily want the marriage to fail. They just want to get out of the pain. They want to stop being two strangers under the same roof. They want to stop walking past each other and, and not talk, and they, they want to stop that tension. And, and because they love their children, they also want that environment to change. So I understand those dynamics. And, and even those of us who have the best of marriages, we probably all had seasons, even just a day or a few hours, where we felt that way. And that was bad enough. And can't imagine feeling that every day for months or maybe years on end. So anyway, my friend, he said, he said, divorce is seldom the escape from the pain that you expect. It's often the door to a whole new world of pain. If you would both put in the work into saving your marriage that it will take to end your marriage, many times you will find happiness with that person once again. Now, we're not saying that marriage is the end-all solution to every social problem. We're just simply saying this morning that marriage really does matter. A third thing that undermines marriage today is cohabitation. Uh, more than half people getting married today lived together first. Back in 1970, practically nobody did that. I remember when I was, I think I was 12 years old, the very first time I heard of somebody living together. And I was absolutely shocked. As a 12-year-old, what do you mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? And I can remember the adults talking about it, just they were kind of flabbergasted. That was back in 1970. Of course, things have changed today. But the problem with cohabitation, as many studies show, is that people who live together often think and live like singles more than like a married couple. I know the average person who lives in cohabitation, they say, and they convince themselves, well, well, it's just like being married, just a piece of paper. Well, if it's just a piece of paper, let me ask you this. Why is it 
that when somebody's talking at the office or you watch some uh, talk show on TV where somebody announces they're engaged, why is it everybody goes crazy? If living together is the same as marriage, what's the difference? You see, people say we don't need to be married to be committed. Yes, you do, because marriage is the commitment. <laughs> that's the commitment. And that's why you can be living together for five years, and then a girl finally gets a ring, and all of a sudden, ah! Why would it matter? It's the same slot you've been with for five years. Because marriage is different. What is, what is the ring saying? I'm committed to you. I'm not going to live like a single anymore. I want you to know I'm off the market. I want anybody to know that you're off the market. You see, it's entirely different. And when you've made that commitment, that covenant to one another, you also, we'll talk about it in just a minute, but you also come into a relationship that is bonding in a unique way that a common law relationship simply is not. In fact, the average child who is a child of a common law relationship, they see their parents divorce by the time they're five years of age, 50% of the time, as opposed to 15% of the time for those who are in a relation or in a home where the couple is married. 50%, 15%, that's quite significant. And then finally, after 50 years of collecting all the data, we already know the effects of these things we've talked about. But to destabilize marriage even further, now we have same-sex marriage. And we're not really going to know the effects of same-sex marriage. I mean, we have an idea. And those of us who know the Lord, we understand the dysfunction and, and, and things that don't work there. But statistically, societally, we're not going to know really for another 20, 30 years uh, the devastation of what that's going to do uh, in lives as well as in, in, uh, in the institution of marriage itself. But the point is this. I don't want us to think for a moment that all of these different options that we looked at this morning, that they're simply just adding to the options of marriage. That's one of the biggest lies in our society today. We're just given more options for other people. No, you have to understand, these so-called options intentionally are undermining what marriage is itself. And it's undermining what the family is. And in underlining the undermining the marriage and the family, you are damaging lives. And those damaged lives, as they grow, begin to change society. Society as a whole becomes different, and we see that today. And by the way, we had a wise uh, prime minister a number of years ago who once said, that what a, uh, you know, what a consenting couple does in the privacy of their own bedroom, you know, the government has no right to it, no right to be there. Boulder dash. I don't know what other word to use. That is just a wheelbarrow full of, you know what? Because you see, what we condone as a society in the so-called privacy of our room, it communicates our moral fabric. And it never stays hidden. What we practice in private will always come out in the way we talk, in the way we treat people, in the way we vote, the things we condone, the things we are against, it, it all filters through. You can't hide sin. You can't hide depravity. You can't hide immorality. You, know, you just can't hide it. It's going to come out in our society at large. Our government's responsibility, if it is going to be a Judeo-Christian nation, our government's responsibility is to protect marriage itself because of the effect it has on our children and on society at large. Uh, Joseph Rotz is an Oxford University professor. He's not a believer, but he makes an interesting observation about marriage. He said this, the inevitable and sweeping consequences of changing marriage laws will not just add new options to the heterosexual family, they will change the character of the family. Uh, Michelangelo Signorile, I don't know if Daniel and Liliana are here. I think that's Italian. I'm sorry for massacring that name. Um, but he's actually... Uh, uh, a, a gay man himself, he's also a very strong advocate for same-sex marriage. And a number of years ago, this is what he said, he urged 
his fellow gay activists, fight for same-sex marriage and its benefits, number one, and then, once granted, redefine the institute of marriage completely and demand the right to marry. Now, notice he says this, not as a way of adhering to society's moral codes. In other words, we're not wanting to get married because we agree with marriage. The purpose is to debunk a myth and radically alter an archaic institution. And so as an agenda, the goal is not to have marriage because we believe in marriage, we honor God, we believe in lifelong commitment. No, no. The reason is because we want to undermine marriage itself to the point where the whole idea of the family has been entirely changed. That is the stated goal. Now, in saying all this stuff, we understand that, you know, we don't hate people. It's not about that. What we hate is the, the lies of a world spirit that, that continues to lead people down a path that promises some kind of fulfillment or in some cases to, to justify or condone perverseness or, or whatever the selfishness of the heart may desire. But as the scripture says, and we see it over and again, it always results in death. It results in brokenness. It, it, it results in dysfunction. That's, that's what we hate. We hate the sin. We hate the result of the lies. And so we want to stand for truth, again, not in some kind of self-righteous, prudish way. We want to stand for truth because if we ourselves are living in truth, then we understand that God's way works. And our heart's desire is for homes to work and, and couples to work and, and children to be healthy and, and all that goes with that and as well for the health and the good of our society. Now, how are we doing for time? As you read the Bible, um, we see in Genesis 1 and 2, that God created man on the sixth day. And he says that although all of his creation was very good, one thing was not good. And what was that? It was not good that man was alone. Now, that's an absolutely amazing statement. Because was man alone? I mean, God made him. He was made in God's image. Uh, this was before the fall. So Adam walked with God, talked with God, communed with God. I just find that kind of an amazing statement. Because God is the one who says... As I look down, there's one thing that's not good. Man, Adam at that time, he is alone. And by the way, a lot of things I'm going to say about Adam here, it goes both ways in, in the relationship. But, but God is the one who points out that it was not perfect. And he tells us, what that tells me is that God designed us with needs that are unique to being, uh, that are unique to being human beings, and they're needs that only a fellow human being can meet. That's really something unique about our creation. As much as we love God, as Paul said, in him we live and move and have our being, that's all so true. But there's certain aspects. I mean, how many understand you walk with God, but there's times you just need a human hand around you? Right? I mean, we just need that contact. God has wired us in such a way that we still have this great need for another human being to meet needs that God himself has not wired us to be met only necessarily in him. And so it was only a matter of companionship that Adam needed. God could have provided that. But God has made us so that part of our completeness is only found in becoming one with another person through marriage. Now, there is also a completeness that is promised to the individual who God has called to a life of singleness, a ministry of singleness. We're going to talk about that the week after next. But for this morning's purposes, in the scripture, we see that in creation, it was only the woman that could complete what God said was missing in the man's aloneness. And that is reciprocated. God says in Genesis 2, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. That word helper, of course, means housekeeper. I will make... 
I shouldn't have paused. But Vanessa always reminds me, some people are here for the first time. They don't know you. He says, I'll make you a helper fit for you. And it's really interesting that when God, before he makes Eve, the first thing he does is he brings all the animals, all of creation to Adam for Adam to name. That's interesting. And I really believe one of the reasons is because as, as Adam would see hundreds of animals, and however long it took, we don't know, one by one by one, looking at them, the uniqueness, give them the name that described exactly what they were, I believe as he gets further and further down the line, Adam begins to realize that there's nothing for me. They're not like me. So that by the time that God actually creates Eve, Adam has this incredible appreciation of his need for somebody just like him and an appreciation for how incredibly unique Eve was to him. The word helper actually refers to one who provides strength in the area that is lacking. How many understand that God is our helper? That's what Scripture says. He's our helper. Does that make him less than us? Does that mean he just comes alongside to make our dreams come true? No, he is our strength. He is the one who comes alongside and fills in those places of things that we cannot do. And also we have this word fit, a helper fit. And again, what it implies to me is that Eve is not just Adam's clone, but she is different in ways that will perfectly complement his weakness, just as he will do for them. And we see that incredibly in the raising of a family. I want us to understand this morning that a husband and wife, the scripture says, complete each other in a way that a man with a man cannot do. In a way that a woman with a woman simply cannot do. If it doesn't make any difference, let me just throw this out to you. Then why is it that in same-sex relationships, you'll always have one person who will take on a male demeanor and one a female? Why? Why is that? Even if they're both kind of feminine, even if they're both kind of masculine, when they get together, one takes a different role than the other. Because we recognize that we are created to be with someone who is different than us and then to complement each other in a beautiful way that God has intended. Um, uh, uh, also, notice how God created the woman. He doesn't speak her into existence. He doesn't uh, create her from the earth like he does from Adam. Instead, what God does, he makes Adam fall asleep because men are wimps. And he creates Eve from out of Adam's side. And that is why, theologically, men love ribs. We love ribs. I have not met a guy who doesn't love ribs. I'm just saying, it's in the Word. But I really believe that God was also making a statement that Eve was not just another creature. She was the only one who would perfectly complement and complete Adam. Not just another man, not just another animal, not even two women. Notice God didn't create two Eves. One woman and one man become complete. In fact, in interesting, the word woman literally means his woman. Newfoundlanders got it right. Yeah, you met the wife? His woman. I, I can't redeem that. <laughs> that's just out there. But it goes both ways. And, and we'll talk about it more in a couple weeks' time. But that's why Paul gets into very, very specific details. Men, you've got to understand, you don't own your body. Your, woman, your wife does. Your woman does. <laughs> Women, you don't own your body. Your husband does. We'll elaborate more on that. That flies against everything that our culture says because they don't understand the spirit and the heart in which that relationship happens. But, uh, but God wants us to understand that we belong to each other in an incredibly unique way. Marriage matters. And then God protected the marriage 
with a covenant. Now, some people believe that marriage is entered into officially through the act of sex. Uh, that's not true. If that were the case, you wouldn't have such a thing called premarital sex that God, uh, that God uh, says to abstain from. But marriage is protected with a covenant. A covenant is first and foremost, it is an oath, it's a promise, it's a pledge between a man and a woman. God said in Malachi 2, she is your companion and your wife by covenant. What that means is that marriage is not just a contract that we can tear up or walk away from. In God's eyes, it is a binding agreement that cannot be broken. Under certain circumstances, and there are very few that he gives in Scripture, Listen to what he says in that full passage of Malachi 2. The Lord says to his people, You cover the Lord's altars with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord has witnessed, he's seen, between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one? with a portion of the Spirit in their union. Get that. When a man and a woman come together and become one, part of the mystery of marriage is the portion of God's Spirit that comes in and seals that union. And what was the one God seeking? He's saying that I'm one as well, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. What's he seeking? He's seeking godly offspring. He says the marriage covenant is so incredibly important, speaking to his people, he says because out of that marriage covenant, there comes godly children. And godly children begin to grow, and they have children, and they have children. What's he saying? It's one of God's ways of blessing society. It's one of God's ways of making society work. It's one of God's ways of showing those who don't know him that life can work. Life can be fulfilling. Marriage can be very, very fulfilling as well. He says, so guard yourselves where? In your spirit. Because I'm going to tell you this, friends. When marriages begin to have problems, when they begin to grate all those issues, the issue is not your spouse nine times out of ten. It's in your spirit. That doesn't mean they can't rub you the wrong way. They can't drive you nuts. They can't do something wrong. But I'm talking about a lot of things. The, the, the wedge begins by allowing the enemy into our spirit. He begins to work in there and start to try to pull apart what the Spirit of God has put together. And he said, let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. And again, in that context, that's what was happening with men in that culture. Like we see in the Middle East today where women had very little rights. He's speaking, he's speaking about that, but the principle applies certainly both ways. Marriage is something we're to take seriously because God takes it seriously, so serious. In fact, that when he created marriage, he protected it with a covenant that he said he would back with action against the person who was breaking it. Listen to what he says in Peter. Likewise, husband, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. I won't get into that uh, for time's sake. It just simply means physically you're stronger. And in the culture of the day as well, there was a vulnerability. To, I said I was going to get into it, but real quick. There was a vulnerability. That's, that's what he's saying. There's a vulnerability there. And in your culture, in your strength, the gifts I've given to you, part of that is that protection, just like Jesus did for his church as he loved and gave himself for the church. So the weaker vessels, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. In other words, there's a direct correlation between your relationship with God and your relationship with your spouse. How you regard your spouse and how God regards you. I can't be in covenant with God and out of covenant with my wife because God is committed to our covenant. God is committed to supporting our covenant. 
So when I go to God and I have a complaint about my spouse, what does God do? He talks to me first. He makes sure I'm in the right place. He makes sure my heart is pure. He makes sure there's not something in my spirit. And you know what? You're never going to believe this. But a lot of times the problem is me. It blows me away too. Because I always think how lucky she is. My wife, Vanessa, for those who haven't met her. You know? I get to stop there. But, but we think that way. You know, oh, they're so lucky, they realize how lucky they are. And we don't see oftentimes how incredibly selfish we are, how small-minded we are. We don't see how we, have, how we have been duped. We've been just deceived by the Spirit that says, it's all about you. It's about your fulfillment. That's, that's what that person is there for. And, of course, there's great fulfillment in a relationship that works God's way. But it doesn't begin by, first and foremost, making that fulfillment the end goal. There has to be that dying to self. In fact, I remember, I can't remember his name now, spoke to men a number and number of years ago, but he basically said, you have an option in a marriage, either you die or your marriage dies. You've got a choice. And that's true. Either you die. It doesn't mean you're a doormat. I'm not talking about that. But either you get in the habit of, of allowing the Lord to crucify things in you that are just your flesh so that you can really have a largeness of love that even in times when, you, when your spouse is rubbing you the wrong way, that largeness of love that God is working in your heart is able to compensate in that period of time for what they need. So it's not just tit for tat because you're both aggravated with each other or grating on each other. Uh, when Peter says to regard our spouse in an understanding way, I believe he means that we are to discover and cherish the uniqueness of this person that we married because they are different from any other person than you could have married. And some of you are saying, don't have to tell me that. But that's also why, and this is very important, friends, that's also why when you run into difficulty in your marriage, uh, whether it's a dry season or, or, or just something you don't see the right way, you're upset about, it's no coincidence that the devil will always come to you, and the first lie he will oftentimes tell you is this, I married the, I never thought that, shame on you, I wasn't going to say that, but thanks for being honor, honest with your spouse sitting beside you. No, that's true. Why do you know that? Because we fight the same enemy. It's the same strategy. You're not the only ones that have those thoughts. I married the wrong person. I married the wrong person. What would Jesus have us say? Maybe I'm being the wrong person. Ever think of that? Maybe I'm not being the person God wants me to be to this person. Because when you take that attitude, God is able to release some amazing things in that person's life. And then Peter goes on to say that much of what God wants to do in the way of forming you, in the way of moving through you, it's going to happen in the relationship with that person because you are heirs with them of the grace of life. What is the co- why is the covenant so important? I'm done with this. The covenant I have here is the glue that holds the marriage together until mature love finally cements the relationship. If you take two pieces of wood and put a wood glue between them, stick them into a vise, leave it there for what, quite a while, eventually that wood becomes stuck. What can you do? You take the vise off, and the wood is now together. It's not going to be torn apart. If you do tear it apart, what happens? It's ripped, it's fragmented, it's splintered. That's, very, you know, that's a, a, a perfect image of what happens oftentimes in a, in a broken relationship, in a marriage relationship. But the idea is that that vice is that covenant. But there comes a time as you grow in mature love, that you don't need necessarily that covenant, right? You love this person. 
mature love is actually that love where you look forward to growing old with that person, right? Uh, good time, guys, to say amen. I'm trying to help you here. Okay? I'm just lobbing you some soft ones here. But that's what mature love is. Now, it doesn't mean that from time to time you don't have to return to your covenant. You can go through a difficult time, a struggle, whatever it may be. Things can happen in life, the death of a loved one, a child, who knows. Devastating things can happen in our lives. And sometimes we have to return to those covenants. But it's mature love. Mature love that moves us from self-denial to self, or rather that moves us from self-fulfillment. Anyway, you know what I mean. From self-denial, that's what it is. Mature love brings us out of that self-denial. No, it doesn't. <laughs> anyway, buy the book. I'll make some available back. <clears throat> yeah, mature love is what really gets us to understand what, how we find self-fulfillment. That self-fulfillment does come through that self-denial. It also makes us understand. And how many have understood this? You can feel free to raise your hands on this one, okay? But I have found this. That if you'll understand that nine times out of ten, the problem in your marriage is not the problem. Or the person, rather, in your marriage is not the problem. The problem is the problem. Let me say that again. The person in your marriage is not the problem. The problem is the problem. And what the Lord wants you to do is come together as two people and face the problem together. And it's amazing what you can walk through and overcome through that and plus grow closer together in that. But the enemy will always make you think that the person is the problem and then drive us away. And that's why we begin with, in our, in our marriage relationship, we begin with romantic love that usually lasts about three to five years. And then mature love begins to grow in the relationship until you don't really need the covenant anymore. Now you realize you're just stuck together forever. Uh, which is a good thing. Uh, but in all seriousness, though, mature love is what makes you look forward to growing old together. Uh, finally, studies show that two-thirds of unhappy marriages, and I've seen this uh, on talk shows, I've heard it on the radio, I've read it, Two-thirds of unhappy marriages will become happy within one to five years if the couple stays married and does not divorce. Two-thirds of marriages say. Uh, if, in fact, oftentimes, and, and again, you know, this is not always the case, as I said from the very beginning, but I don't know how many times I've talked to folks who've had divorce in their life, and they said, you know what, I know looking back, I, if I had stuck with it and worked it out, because I, I basically kind of married the same person or the same person, or I brought the same problems with me, and a lot of the times that we could have worked it out. And again, there's all different scenarios. And oftentimes, too, for many of us, these things have happened in our lives before we knew Christ, before we knew truth. And that make, that's a radical change as well. But two-thirds of marriages, so that's quite interesting. And so the, the point is, is that society just feeds us these lines. Because society is not necessarily interested in, in you. And that is the spirit of our culture. When I talk about the spirit of our culture, I'm talking about a, a, a culture that is headed by Satan and leaves God out of the picture. And Jesus said the enemy comes for one reason, to rob, steal, kill, and destroy. He doesn't come to bring you fulfillment. He comes to bring destruction. So it's not a condemnation of us, but again, it's a frustration with us believing a culture that constantly lies to us and sets us up for failure. I'm going to ask the musicians to join me as we close around the Lord's table. What Paul says in Corinthians, he says, For us there is one God, the Father, from whom there are all things and for whom we exist. What Paul is basically saying is that God made us because he loves us and he enjoys us and he wants us to enjoy everything that he has for us. But in order for that to happen, we have to be willing to listen to the Holy Spirit. We have to be willing as people who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ, we have to be willing to stop listening to our feelings, stop listening to our friends. If they're not speaking truth, if they're not speaking God's truth, we've got to learn to stop listening to them and start listening to the Holy Spirit. 
Come before the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, what would you show me? What would you do in me? What would you change in me? Lord, if it's not about me, if it's about them, then would you give me grace? Would you give me a love? Would you enlarge the capacity of my heart uh, for this covenant that you have backed up for this to work? That's what the Lord wants to do for us. We see the society all around us is falling apart because it doesn't realize that it can't have the kind of life and relationship that we're talking about with oh God. But you know what? One of the greatest proofs, one of the greatest proofs of the existence of God, and that's why Jesus likens marriage to Christ and the church, one of the greatest proofs of the existence of God is very simply a marriage, a marriage between two people who know Christ, who are walking in the fullness of what Christ has for them. And we see that begin to be blessed to children. In fact, Scripture talks about that the blessing of that is to the third and fourth generation, that godly legacy that's passed on. It's not just about churches sitting and people sitting in church together. That's not what it's about. It's about people who understand how life works because they have a relationship with the Creator. They understand what love is. They understand what forgiveness is. They understand that they can turn to the Lord in times they need wisdom and strength and things aren't going right. And when everything else maybe has fallen around us, that we do have truth that we can go to and the Lord can guide us. He can direct us. And He can give us an incredible capacity for forgiveness, for patience, whatever it is we need. The Lord can do that in our lives. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, or maybe you're here this morning and you're, with some, or you're, you're here by yourself, you don't have a believing spouse, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. God, God will still use you. God wants to draw you close to him. He also wants to use you to bless your spouse. And I encourage you not to give up on your spouse. Continue to pray for them, to continue to, to serve them with the spirit of Christ. Continue to show them that your walk with Christ is not just a Sunday thing, but the Lord is changing you, freeing you. Love them with his love. Serve them with, with, with Christ's heart. Uh, the Lord can be very redemptive. The Lord can do some wonderful things. But it does require for all of us, and for those of us who are married this morning, it requires that we understand if we're going to have a fulfilling relationship and not let things plateau, uh, not let you know, marriage become the old ball and chain or just become you know, routine or, or just something that we endure kind of thing until one of us dies. It's going to be more than that. We have to understand that marriage is a covenant. And a covenant means you just don't let things go.